Luke 13, 31 to 35. At that time, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, Leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. He replied, Go tell that fox, I will keep out, I keep on driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow, and on the third day I will reach my goal. In any case, I must press on today and tomorrow and the next day, for surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Look, your house is left desolate to you. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The word of God. Thanks be to God. Well, the kids are not invited to Children's Church in the library today. Well, I think people know why. Um, it's one of the, the challenges of, of this week for me has been so many emails and texts and calls and conversations about whether the church would to continue to meet. You know, this is sometimes I'm grateful we're part of a denomination and a church network. This week was not one of them because I got it from both sides. Is your church meeting? Is your church not meeting? How should your church meet if it meets? What should you do if you're not meeting and all this? And, and Shelly reminded me of something this morning that I didn't remember. She, we weren't even talking. She was talking to somebody else. But um, one of my theological sort of mentors, somebody who I think about often, is the theologian uh, Karl Barth, who existed through uh, Nazi Germany. He's one of the ones who wrote sort of this confessing church document that sort of said, this is what we believe about Jesus, therefore what you're asking of us is not true. Um, and one of the things, and he and Dietrich Bonhoeffer in the German church world at this time were one of the were, were one of the two people to sort of really grasp early on what Nazism was and how it was not just a distortion of the gospel, but was going to be harmful for the church and for the world. But when Hitler finally rises to power, Barth was aware of this before then, one of his students, I believe, came to him and said, what should we do? What should we do now? And, and Karl, in his wisdom, says we should go on as if nothing had changed. In the face of Nazism, his answer is, what should the church do? It should go on as if nothing had changed. Because what he's saying two things. First is, what changes the church? What changes when we speak, what changes when we talk, is not politics or sickness or the news of the world, but God himself. We don't transform who we are other than according to what God would have us do. It's not up to anybody else to declare the church's speech. The second point he's making, which I think is more important for us today, is that um, if the church is being faithful, if the church has grasped the gospel of good news, if the church, like Jesus in this parable, and they say, somebody is trying to kill you, not parable, this teaching in Luke, somebody's trying to kill you, says, I will go on healing and casting out demons until it's time for me to fulfill my mission and be raised on the third day. That the church's faithfulness exists in its fidelity to what it's always been doing. Not in doing new things, not in finding new things, and not going anywhere else. So in light of, of uh, 
coronavirus and, and the challenges that we have. I think for Defiance Church, the question is, how do we keep going on as if nothing had changed while not being stupid? Um, so we didn't pick up the seniors who live across the street today. Um, we ended kids' churches, as Kelly fucking explained. Communion today, we're, we're not going to take, and I'll talk a little bit more about that later. We may take it in the future going forward. But it's for our body to keep on going as if we've been faithful, and God will continually be faithful to us. And so in our prayer time, we'll, we'll probably have prayers about this, and we'll talk about this. But I think in the meantime, it's for us to faithfully keep going on the journey that we've been on. And so the journey we've been on is walking through the Gospel of Luke. We walked through these first um, ten chapters before the Transfiguration and saw Jesus healing and casting out miracles and creating tableship, table fellowship where there was none, forgiving sins, and proclaiming the kingdom of the good news. And what happened shortly after that is, is they begin to talk, who is this one? Who is this who calms the storms? Who is this who forgives sins? Who is this who's transforming the world in this way? And finally, Jesus asked his disciples, so who do you say that I am? And as we know, Peter says that you're the Messiah, the Christ. And what happens then is Jesus begins to predict his death. He begins to talk about where he's going. He sets his face resolutely towards Jerusalem, and that is the path he walked from there. So we find Jesus today in the 13th chapter of Luke. In that same spot, following the cross, following his way to the path where he's supposed to go. And at that time, some Pharisees came to him and said, Leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. Now this, why would the Pharisees warn Jesus that Herod wants to kill him? We've given hints that they want to kill Jesus throughout the Gospels, but we've also seen Jesus dying with Pharisees, hang out with some Pharisees. Pharisees seem inquisitive to who Jesus is while not necessarily accepting. To be fair, nobody is this side of the cross in the Gospels. Um, the Pharisees, they come to Jesus and they tell him that Herod's about to kill him. And there's multiple reasons on why this might be. The first is they just don't want to see somebody die. <laughs> which is, I think, a fair interpretation. Herod is, uh, what is it, the enemy of my enemy is my friend? That's the second way. If they're actually looking, the enemy of their enemy is the enemy. Uh, Herod is their enemy more than Jesus is. And so Herod getting a victory by killing John the Baptist, as he's done in Luke's Gospel, and killing Jesus, would make Herod look a little bit stronger than they want him to look. The second, and I think this is more in tune with Acts, where in, in the end of this story is that there are a whole lot of these Pharisees leaders who are good leaders who say, look, it's better that this guy die than all of us die. At this moment, they're not to that point yet. What they might be saying is, look, if he's hanging out in Judea, if he's hanging around the people who go to our church, if he's hanging around the people who go to synagogue, not church, but you get the point, if he's hanging out in these areas, and Herod says, you know what, I've had enough. I'm going to go get him and kill him. Other people might die along the way. Or Herod invades their city or their town or their synagogue and seizes Jesus. Why don't you go someplace else, looking out for other people? We see this in the gospel of it's better that one man die than the whole of us get condemned. At this moment, they might have the strategy of, of let's preserve this, don't let him kill you here if he's going to kill him. 
And it could be that they're just trying to get Jesus to move on, to move away. But what Jesus says to them is, go tell that fox it will keep driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow. On the third day, I will reach my goal. In any case, I must press on today and tomorrow and the next day. For surely no prophet can die outside of Jerusalem. Jesus calls out what his mission is. And so after the disciples declare who Jesus is, they go up on the mountain, and Jesus is talking to Moses and Elijah, and the Greek word there is he's talking about his exodus. He's talking about his leaving the people, leading the people into this new life that he goes into first with them. He's talking about this new exodus, which is this rescue from sin and death instead of Pharaoh and slavery, although sin is its own slavery and sin is death. And so what Jesus is saying here is that he will reach that goal. He will achieve that day. He will make perfect. The Greek word uh, we don't use a lot in our sense, but is, um, if you've ever heard like teleological uh, as a word, teleos, it's not just um, perfection or completeness. It's this wholeness of the thing. It's saying that there is a goal and end in sight that he'll achieve, and that we are being drawn towards and going towards all along. And Jesus in this passage is, of course, referring to the cross and resurrection, but he's also referring to that day in which all of his work of casting out demons, of healing the sick, will be made complete as well. That Jesus is going to renew all things. Now what's great is is they tell him to leave and go. Jesus tells them, go tell that fox. Now there's this thing you see it in movies often, Ford versus Ferrari is one of the other ones, uh, where people are told something by some other leader, and they have to go back and tell their leader what was said. But their leader, the leader they were just talking to, often says something very cruel that it's like kill the messenger type stuff. So Ford versus Ferrari, what did Enzo Ferrari say, Don? I know you've seen it, but um, he's fat and has been, and his dad was yeah. a better car maker than he was. Not good things. Yeah, so the guy has to go back and tell him why they rejected the deal. Point being is, is they're not going to open up right off the bat and just, well, your enemy just called you fat, lazy, and not as good as your dad. Um, doesn't go well for the messenger always. Jesus, go tell that fox, your enemy, you guys go, tell him. And a fox at this time has similar connotation to ours of sort of cunningness and guile and stuff like that. But it was also uh, one of my favorite things preserved by, I think it was one of the ancient commentators said that they were stinky. Um, the foxes had a horrible smell to them. Um, and that they also had um, a, a devious nature about them to the people at this time. It's not just that they're smart like the fox, like the quick to the fox, murder the fox. Um, is that the fox actually has some sort of devious nature as people call people foxes at that time. So go tell him, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to continue in my mission, casting out demons and healing in the time that I have. So Jesus confesses back that no prophet will die outside of Jerusalem. This brings us to the next section about the hen. Now, what's weird is commentators, modern commentators, all week were like, why are these two passages together? Uh, they're very different teachings, this, that, and the other. And 
scientists don't know why none of them thought fox and fox and foxes have throughout the world they didn't discover this modernly have always been a threat to people's farms crops this that and the other um, that the fox calling her a fox and then calling himself a hen puts these two in relationship to each other that Jesus is going to gather his people and so Jesus turns and says Jerusalem Jerusalem you who killed the prophets and stoned those who sent you how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Look, your house is left you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jerusalem, Jerusalem is what leads this lament. Now Luke uses the word Jerusalem and refers to Jerusalem 90 times throughout his gospel. The other three gospels combined refer to Jerusalem 40 times. Luke sees Jerusalem as a symbol for the people of Israel, a symbol for all those gathers, a symbol for this thing that will be the light to the nations. In Luke's theology, Jerusalem is not what it is meant to be, but will be brought what it's been meant to be by Jesus. So we see the nations streaming to Israel and the prophet Isaiah. We see the nations gathering around Jerusalem. We see people ascending Jerusalem to give thanks to God. It's, it's that in the Old Testament, it's sort of this spot where God's presence and holiness is magnified in a way that you come to it. Luke is operating within that mindset as it is not what it is. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I've longed to gather her children together as a mother hen gathers her chicks. Now this is a mother hen gathering her chicks. I guess I didn't need to explain the photo. Um, I, when I first saw it, I was like, why does that have, hen have so many legs? Because um, they're really in there. Um, uh, from the storm. Now, there was somebody in the early 1900s who wrote a story of a mother hen who sat over her chicks in the midst of a forest fire or a farm fire and was fried um, to death. And when they, people came through afterward, the two chicks were there. Um, and this was written as sort of a, a way to remember that Jesus is one who dies for us and this, that, and the other. Um, and it still makes its way into, into modern scholarships, but it turns out Snopes, which is the debunking page, has like a full article committed to like, unlikely, didn't happen, blah, 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 here's its origin story. So I went with this image because this one at least we have a picture of it happening. Um, a mother hen protects its chicks. Now, you're like me and didn't grow up on a farm. You're always amazed in, in, in Illinois, it's more likely geese than, than chickens. But the geese are like, if you go to a baby goose, what's it called? Gosling. Gosling. Um, and the mother is around, they make some sort of satanic scream and ward you off as best as they can. And they don't care if you're on a bike, uh, have a big stick. I was in junior high at one point, so not particularly um, smart. Uh, although they were still terrified, we never hit one. They don't care at all. Um, and that these birds have sort of this rabid sort of nature to them. Mother hens 
are the same way. They have sort of this way in which they will protect their young and offer themselves up. Now, if you're um, a modern person like I am, and you think Jesus had the line of Judah to choose from, for birds, he had uh, Israel is often sheltered by an eagle. Um, Jesus had these very strong images to choose, and yet Jesus goes with the mama chicken. Um, doesn't seem like the one I would go with to reassure my disciples of where we're going. But there's two elements to why I think that is. The first is it brings in this gathering image that Christ is going to gather up his people someday. God is going to bring about this gathering. The second is, is that what we're about to see and what the disciples have resisted is that this one is going to offer himself up for his children. The lion would fight back. The eagle has talons. The mother hen, while it may respond fiercely to the threat that's coming, the coming fox, the powers that want to destroy it, the things that want it to go away, the things that want to stamp it out in the world, the hen, while guarding its own, confronts invulnerability. And so too does Jesus as he confronts death and sin in a world tilted off its access. He confronts in his own vulnerability and dies on a cross. As much as we might want to pick other images that make him seem not like a tough bird, Jesus prefers this one because it reminds us that he is one who is going to offer himself up for us. He is one who is going to die for the gathering again someday. Now this, this image um, is on a hill outside of Jerusalem. I can't remember the name of it. Did you go here, Shelley? And through, there's a window that frames Jerusalem, the actual city, and it has bars through it, almost as if it were framed. And this is above or below it, do you remember it? I think it's above. This is above it. Um, is this truth that never happened? And around it, written in, I think, Greek, from here it looks like Greek, probably Greek or Latin. It says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. I've longed to gather you like a mother hen gathers her chickens. And so in seeing the present picture framed, Jerusalem in its fallenness, Jerusalem in its um, not healing the nation, Jerusalem in its resistance to be what God has called it to be. And it should be noted, us as well. God has longed to gather us, his children, too, under his wings. And while we go sometimes, oftentimes we resist as well, chasing our own places. But this image, what it does in that scene in that chapel, is it overlayers what will be someday what God is going to do and bring about. What is the teleos of God with us in temple and in creation and in his very only son, the goal, the end, the perfection, will be achieved in time. But in the meantime, we have a view of the God, and you may not be able to see it, but those are little chicks along the bottom. Um, 
A God who wants to gather his people in. A God who wants to shelter them. And instead of guaranteeing force over everything, or winning through violence or power, offers himself up so that we too may be saved. In any case, I must press on today and tomorrow and the next day, for surely no prophet can die outside of Jerusalem. This is the path we walk in Advent or Lent. This is the path we are on together. And it is the place we are going to with Jesus as much as we might like it. To see him confront that place and gather us in. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let us pray. God, today we, your people, have come together and gathered. We're children. Take us in as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. Through your spirit, make us a willing people when we were not willing. Allow us to follow at the distance that we can to the place in which you will go. To pick up our crosshairs and follow you. And to behold you as the one who offers himself up for the saving of many. We ask all this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.